Welcome to Deepen with Pastor Joby Martin. The Church of 1122 is a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we're praying this message helps you deepen your relationship with Him. Now let's dive in. All right, I want to welcome everybody who's listening and watching the Deepen podcast with Pastor Joby Martin. We have a very special episode today. Um, some of you know we typically record these episodes right after our Thursday night service, so it's at night, and we're talking about the sermon that just happened. It's all fresh in our minds. Uh, we're pre-recording today uh, for a couple reasons. One, Pastor Joby is going to be on our trip to Israel, so if you're listening and you have not yet gone to Israel, sell a kidney, sell some stuff around the house, <laughs> get on that trip, totally life-changing. Uh, but secondly, we're going to have a special guest with us for that time he's away, who's also with us, and I'll let you introduce Pastor Joby, our, our Yeah, guest. I am pumped about this. I mean, if you're watching, you already know who it is, but I feel like I'm among greatness. I think we're supposed to be peers, but it does not feel like that at all. He is a singer, songwriter, but most notably, literally one of the greatest preachers of our generation. He's housed at Shiloh right here in town, but... Uh, Occasionally, he slums it and comes over here to Love It 22 <laughs> and shares the word. And so I'm pumped to have H.B. Charles here with us. Thanks for having me. It's a joy to be with you. Yeah, man. Yeah, welcome, Pastor H.B. I I, uh, I still think often of your sermon from, I don't know, was it last year, Insaturated, talking about the Lord's Prayer. And uh, man, it was beautiful. Uh, but we're going to be diving into a, a section of scripture here. We're studying Philippians. And uh, the text is from chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. And so it kind of goes in a couple different sections. So I thought we could just talk about each different one. We can go wherever we want to go. But uh, let me start with this. You know, I see two themes here. Uh, one is the attitude of humility, talking about Jesus is one of the more, more famous. I think I say that every week about Philippians. This is one of the most famous sections of Philippians. It's got a lot. Um, attitude of humility. And we're exhorted to be uh, of the same mind of Christ with that same humility. And there's an uh, exhortation at the end of this section of, of not to complain. Don't grumble. Don't complain. And so let's let's dive in right there. First, with humility, what, what most consistently humbles you? Men. Being a parent. <laughs> I mean, that'll put you in your place, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, humility is an interesting thing. I think we often talk about humility as an attitude or a feeling, mm. but I don't think the Bible talks about it as a as a feeling mm. or even like a wiring, you know, like like a personality type. I think the Bible most often talks about humility as a posture mm -hmm. and that you are rightly postured before the Lord. Like you know who he is and then in light of him you know who you are and that's where humility comes from. Mm. Yeah, you talked uh, uh, earlier in the series about he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion and the things that we need that verse for, our own sanctification, our own discipleship efforts, and our parenting, because, Correct. and nothing humbles you like those like those things. Uh, what about you, Pastor HB? What, what humbles you regularly? Yeah, I think um, I would agree with uh, Pastor Joby being a husband and a father. Mm -hmm. uh, are greatly humbling. In light of the text, I think um, the bulk of uh, this passage in chapter 2 falls from the exhortation in verse 27, 
that paragraph that closes chapter one that bids us to let your manner be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like much of what he says descends from that overarching exhortation. And I think uh, preaching the gospel to ourselves every day mm-hmm. uh, is essential to the, the life of humility that Paul calls for here. Mm-hmm. The reminder that we are what we are because of Christ and it has nothing to do with ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, life has a way of humbling you mm-hmm. and just the mechanics of, of, of our lives. But on top of that, the message of the gospel that we need to remind ourselves of every day, not just in our devotional periods as we start the day, but throughout the day, mm. um, I really think is critical for, mm-hmm. for practicing humility. Yeah, Vingy, a couple things. I would say, you know, I say it all the time, I can't get over the gospel. Mm-hmm. I mean, what a humbling idea. Uh, or the way the, the, the hymn writer says it, I scarce can take it in. Mm-hmm. That he would die for me. I mean, I get it theologically, you know. Yeah. Um, so I can't get over that. If I think about that for a little while, I get all weepy. I can't get over it, man. Mm-hmm. And then... And then not just save me that I could be with him forever, but then equip me and call me and use me. Mm. One of the most humbling things in my entire life is pastoring the church of 1122. Mm. I don't deserve to do this, man. Mm -hmm. And I think people think that I'm, my ego would be through the roof because of this. Mm. And it has had the opposite impact Mm -hmm. because I know me Mm. and I know my limited abilities. I know my limited skills. I know my crazy mind. I know the areas of my life that still need a whole bunch of sanctification. I know all those things yeah. intimately, and yet he would use somebody like me. Mm. And so I've told people many times that when a mosquito grabs onto a freight train, the mosquito does not feel bigger. That's how I feel in, <laughs> yeah. in this role, man. I, don't, I didn't have plans for this. I didn't, I didn't have this grand vision and dream of the amount of people that would come to meet Jesus through this ministry. I, I never imagined that. And that is a very, very humbling thing. In fact, I think back in the day in my youth ministry days, when I'd move into a town, there'd be 12 or 15 kids in a youth ministry and I could grow it to a hundred. I could take full credit for that. I know I can't, but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I felt way more pride in that kind of ministry accomplishment than what's happening here at 1122. Right. A more recent song, uh, the Chris Tomlin has, has one. He said, "There's a line: You see the depths of my heart, and you love me the same." Oh yeah, you're amazing. And I don't even think we see the depths of our own heart. We think we we see them pretty good, but God sees them better than we do. The good and the bad, mostly bad. Uh, we we discussed earlier um, <clears throat> that phrase. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And some translations put that as behave as citizens worthy. Tell us a little bit about that, Pastor HB. Yeah, so one of the temptations for pride among the Philippians was the fact that they had Roman citizenship. Mm -hmm. And Paul is making a big point here Mm -hmm. that our identity is not to be rooted in the things of this world. Mm-hmm. Our background, our ethnicity, our cultural situation. But we are, as he will say at the end of chapter 3, our citizenship is in heaven. Mm-hmm. 
and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And our citizenship is in heaven should shape how we live mm. and how we conduct ourselves. It's as if we are um, resident aliens mm. and we are obeying the authority of another king. We are living by a very different constitution, mm. one rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, not the uh, false value system of this world that tries to squeeze us into its mold mm. in the language of Romans 12. Mm. And I think that's how he started the book because he says, this is back to we one to all the saints, in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi. Every one of us have an in and an at. We should be in Christ, primarily citizens of his kingdom, and then at Jacksonville. And we mentioned this a few weeks ago. Most people are like in Jacksonville and just at church and primarily identifying with the temporary, whether that's political party, race, ethnicity, who you're attracted to, those kinds of things. We're, we're, we're like submerged in that and just kind of lightly at church. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, no, 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 no. If you're a saint, mm-hmm. you are primarily identified by the eternal. And then, but you are at a place. Mm-hmm. And and the in is supposed to define what you do mm-hmm. in the at. Mm-hmm. You have an illustration that you you use from time to time about staying in a hotel for a couple yeah. of days. But that's what that's what this section makes me think of. Just walk walk through that real quick. Just, you know, we travel a lot, right, and preach. Can you imagine if you're at the Holiday Inn Express and you call down front and say, hey, I'm going to take out this carpet and put in hardwood floors, and I'm going to take out this laminate uh, countertop and put in put in granite, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bump out this little breakfast nook here. And if yeah. the, the office would be like, well, we appreciate the investment, but you're staying here for such a short amount of time, seems like an awful waste of money. Absolutely. Yeah, and a lot of times we don't understand that, that man – our life has just been a mist, but we invest like it's all going to be right here. Yeah. I may have jumped ahead a little bit. So, Pastor HB, tell us like where where you see this text. Maybe a summary of the sermon as you as it's in your heart and in your mind now, mm-hmm. and what you want to focus on as we walk through this section. Yeah. So, if I may make two confessions, um, one is uh, this is a. Uh, one of my favorite books of the Bible. Mm. So I just, I just, uh, it's hard for me, as a pastor was saying before we got started, to just say which which is your favorite right. passage <laughs> here. They're just all wonderful. Um, also, uh, it's the first book I ever preached through as a young pastor. Really? Yeah. When and you say young, you started at 16? I started at 17. Okay. And it was some years before I started a preaching in series, and then B preaching consecutively through books. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I preach shorter sections mm-hmm. to just kind of get my legs under me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a few some years in before I really tried to tackle a book, and this was the first one um, that I ever tried to tackle. I did it in like I think I did like thirty three pieces through this, <laughs> and like. When I go back to my old church, I just apologize to them. <laughs> <laughs> I just apologize. So uh, verses one through eighteen, I think like I did like six pieces. I just mm. but there's a temptation mm. to just linger mm-hmm. over uh, these verses. I I think really the key, um, a key factor to understanding the text is in the opening two verses. There is this theme of humility. But humility 
is a means to a greater end, I think. And the, the greater end is, is unity. Mm. The, F- Philippians, the, the church of Philippi is not uh, the church of Corinth. Mm-hmm. Right. This is, um, he doesn't have much to fuss about. And his attitude it, it toward this church, arguably, to say, it seems more positive than any other church he writes to. That's right. Um, but um, there are these, there are some generic troubles out from without. Mm-hmm. But within, he seems to have some concerns. Mm-hmm. And one of them is the unity of the saints at Philippi. And this is where this chapter begins when he says in verses 1 and 2, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. Which, um, you know, we, we, we uh, know this as the epistle of joy. Mm-hmm. But joy, if you read through it and just mark for yourselves how and where he mentions joy, it's like strange joy. <laughs> um, the first mention of joy is in chapter 1 when he says, you know, always in every prayer of mine, verse mm-hmm. 4, making my request for you with joy. It's his joy that he finds in interceding. Mm-hmm. And here he says, I'm in prison. I don't know what the outcome of this trial is going to be, but I, but I have joy. But you all can make my joy complete. You could make my joy cup overflow if I never get out of here, if I could just hear that you are, verse 2, of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So really the chapter begins with this call to unity. Mm-hmm. And he fleshes it out, I think, by saying that that the key to unity is humility. There just can't be true unity without real humility. Mm-hmm. And starting in verse 3, he begins to uh, flesh that out with um, exhortations, the example of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I think that command to do all things without grumbling and complaining should be read in that context right. uh, as a concern, not, not, a, not a frustration with life, but it's another call to unity among one another. Mm. Um, and then even lays himself down as an example. In verses 16 through 18, I know more famously, we recognize um, the closing parts of this chapter with um, Titus, uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus. But he really is the first example he gives in verses 16 through 18 mm-hmm. of this kind of Christ-like humility that lends itself to spiritual unity. So, H.P., you see, I mean, man, we see a lot of disunity in the big C church, a lot of fighting. Yep. Um, what do you think the way forward is, and what's the difference between unity and uniformity? So this is the um, beauty of this text, if I may start there. This has nothing to do with programmatic, organizational, denominational unity. I keep referring to it as spiritual Unity, because this is how he describes it here uh, in the text. The same mind, the same love, full accord, one mind. This has nothing to do with structures, institutions, 
organizations. This is a spiritual unity. And the motivation for it in verse 1 is just so convicting. If you've ever been encouraged by Christ, if you've ever been comforted by his love, dude, if, you've, if you know what it is to have fellowship with the Spirit, if there's any sense of affection and sympathy in you, <laughs> he's like, yeah, it's very facetious, isn't it? It's like, all right, yeah. if you think you're a Christian, even just a little Absolutely. bit, that's who I'm talking to. Yeah, yeah, I mean, um, so I really think that marks the distinction. Mm-hmm. It is the gospel work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts mm-hmm. that um, it is, as the language of Ephesians 4 says, it is... Um, Maintaining the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Mm-hmm. And it is not organization, institution, denomination, positions, offices, and all of those kinds of things, which in a focus of those things lead us to disobey verses three and four, where we end up doing a lot out of selfish ambition and conceit. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah. When I think about unity, I tend to think about it almost pitted against um, some of the things that you're mentioning. So maybe amongst churches, you might say, well, we should just have unity amongst the churches. And my mind first goes to theological differences. Mm -hmm. And uh, it would seem that sometimes churches that are high on unity would be low on theological uh, conviction and would say, well, let's sacrifice. If you think that if you have these convictions about X, Y, Z biblically, and I have other convictions, we should just be unified and therefore put those aside. And I, it's not the same as having unity with the world because we know we're not supposed to do that. But how, as different churches, how as believers who hold different convictions, sure. can we have unity? Yeah, that is a great. That is a great point. Um, I think that spiritual unity should not be described in mushy terms. Mm-hmm. Um, after this call to unity in verses 1 through 5, um, unity through humility, verses 6 through 11 then becomes arguably one of the most theological statements of Paul in all of his writings. Yes. <laughs> yes. And it's the foundation. Mm-hmm. And... Then when he gets finished with that hymn of Christ in verses 6 and 11, he says, therefore, you know, work out your own salvation, verse 12. But that therefore is based upon the doctrinal truth Mm -hmm. that he has just talked about Christ. So I do not think, just my two simple statements from there, is that I do not think that unity requires some downplaying or dismissing of doctrine. Mm-hmm. Um, there is not uh, to be a unity in, in spite of the truth. It's unity around the truth. That's right. But I also think there that doctrinal passage also says that the key to unity, in spite of our differences, is to focus on the person of Christ, mm-hmm. who Christ is and what Christ has done. Mm-hmm. And our focus on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ is uh, the central, essential, essential truth that unifies us in our faith convictions. Mm. That's good. Brett, what about you? What do you think? Unity amongst the church. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, one, 
you, you know you're you're in the presence of someone who carries like a double anointing, like you do, Pastor. When you you are just rattling through three, I don't know that the watchers or listeners would know this, but you're just rattling through verses that are in the front of your mind without even looking at the the, the Bible. You're a man of the word, and we honor you for that. And, and that's inspiring to me, for sure. Um, here's the thing about unity in, in a, a fallen and broken world. In, in the church, run by fallen and broken people, desperate for the grace of God at work in their lives. It's hard work, man. Mm-hmm. But it's worthy work. Mm-hmm. I think that's what Paul, part of what Paul's encouraging the churches, the church through generations is let your life be worthy. And then he exactly what Pastor H.P. just says. He says at the end of chapter one, he says, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ. Mm-hmm. So you have been given a gift, but not for your sake primarily. Mm-hmm. You've been given a gift for the sake of Christ that you would know him and that you would suffer mm-hmm. like him. Mm-hmm. And so much of suffering inside the church is, in my opinion, if we're really going to see a true Christ-exalting unity realized in any local church or in any city or in any whatever network, it's going to come on the heels of emotional and mental struggle and suffering because it requires an immense amount of humility that's not passive in nature because that's like a false unity. It's like, let's just be passive. It requires an immense amount of humility to do the work and to get eyeball to eyeball and to truly not get lost. Look, man, it takes this in my family of four. And pretty much we think alike. We all live in the same house. You know what I mean? Like we think alike. We we live life according to the same schedules and the same rhythms. And the, You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and it is an immense amount of work for us to, for the sake of Christ, be unified as a family of four. Take that and put it at a church of 400 or a church of 4,000 or 40 churches working together. The only It comes on the heels of great emotional, mental, spiritual angst and struggle to truly walk in the worth, yeah. the worthiness. You know what I mean? And our battle is not against flesh and blood. For sure. And we live in a world... Take me, me and you. We live in a world right now that says me and you should not be unified. Right. I mean, that we should primarily be identified by the at, either color, uh, some sort of political thing, whatever it is, right? And then the bill of goods being sold by the enemy and his twist in this world is this. It's, it's um, that the ultimate high is to just tolerate one another. Mm. And our command is not. Our command is to love one another. I mean, there is a possum that lives in my backyard that I can't get, but he's fine. As long as he ain't messing with me, I'm not going to mess with him. That's tolerance. (laughs) The Bible does not call me to tolerate one another. It calls us to to love one another. And then, you know, a pretty good definition of what love is, is in three and following. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is like the, this is love applied. This is what love towards somebody looks like it, as a reflection of how Jesus has loved us. And even more than just a reflection, as like a conduit of how Jesus loves other people through us. Yeah. 
if I may add one thing, because uh, maybe the most simple and radical instruction in the entire text is that the be part of verse three. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Mm. This is how we're to relate to each other. But can you imagine mm-hmm. what the church would be like <laughs> if everyone viewed everyone else as more significant mm. <laughs> than 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 you than you are? And mm-hmm. you know um, that just seems to show that our, our our minds are so shaped by the world. I think just for the average Christian, that just seems ridiculous. Mm. Correct. It just seems ridiculous. When in reality, if I think about it, I am the worst sinner that I know. Mm. I mean, I may hear some stuff about you, but I know. <laughs> I have, I'm a firsthand witness of all the dirt that I have done. Um, you know, in terms of what I, I know intimately of to the degree, I am the worst sinner that I know. And you would, and so in that sense, this instruction is easy. Mm. And it's easy for me to treat others as more significant because I am the worst person that I know. And yet, because it is a spiritual warfare, it is the hardest thing Mm -hmm. (laughs) for me to do to treat others as more significant than myself. And this is the difference that only the gospel. Yeah. My brain works in illustrations. So, so like when you showed up in my office today, it is easy for me to treat you as more significant to me because I feel that way all the time. No problem. But then there's also people that that work for me, like on an org chart, they work for me, and I am called to treat you every bit as with the honor that I treat yeah. this man, yeah. right? Yeah. And wow. and everybody knows how to do it because everybody's been to a wedding, and everybody knew when you showed up to the wedding, you're not the point, she is. <laughs> everybody knows it, yeah. and you're not offended when everybody wants to take pictures with her and not you, mm-hmm. and when everybody lines up, you even get in the line and treat her as if she is more significant than you because on that day she is. So yeah. we know how to do it. Another great, when I was when I was teaching this in student ministry 100 years ago, <laughs> I would ask, all right, who's your hero? Who's like, you know, maybe it's LeBron, whoever it is. If LeBron walked in your room, how would you treat him? If LeBron knocked on the door and said, hey, can I talk to you? You wouldn't be like, leave me alone, I'm on the phone. <laughs> but that's how you talk to your mom. Mm-hmm. And you should treat her as if she is more significant than you. That, mm. So we know how to do it. Yeah. We just dial it up and dial it back depending on the circumstances. Mm. And then you ask, well, all right, well, how far do you take it? And Paul goes, glad you ask. And he uses the example of Christ to the cross. Yep. Mm. That's how he treated you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to talk about that hymn to Christ in just mm-hmm. a second. But you, you pointed out that he grounds his call to unity in the the ultimate thing, which is the example of Christ. So if you're paying attention in church world today, there is a conversation about, hey, let's just focus on Christ. Let's just focus. The most important thing is that Jesus rose from the dead. We can sort of think whatever we want about the rest. How would you respond to that argument? You can take that wherever you want to take it. Um, <clears throat> just because there's a most important thing doesn't mean that all the other things aren't also essential. Mm, so I don't know. For you to stay alive, the most important thing would probably be to breathe for the next four minutes, mm-hmm. right? But if you only focused on breathing, three or four days you would die of starvation. Mm-hmm. So eating is still essential. Mm. So just because 
the resurrection of Christ is the priority of the word mm. of God. Mm-hmm. Paul tells Timothy, from cover to cover, everything it teaches is essential mm. to all things that we need for life and godliness. Mm. So you cannot you cannot divorce yourself from the parts of the Bible that you want and and mainly focus on the the most important thing because all the other parts are essential. Mm. And I would just add, just in the progression of the text, Paul says, verse 5, let this mind be in you. Have this attitude of Christ. Verses 6 through 11 are all about Christ. But he doesn't say now in verse 12 and 13, so just remember Jesus. (laughs) No, he's like... Verse 12 and 13 now says, now, faith has to move forward. Mm-hmm. There, there is that foundation, but there is something to be built in the language of 1 Corinthians. Mm-hmm. He is that foundation, but now you need to build on that mm-hmm. with gold, silver, and precious stones. He says, now work out your own salvation. Mm-hmm. And so he's pushing them forward, further deeper into the life that we're to live in light of the truth of the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's not just remember the cross, remember what Jesus did. Mm-hmm. That's all that matters. Mm-hmm. He's And then from there, in verses 14 and 15, he gets, in, you know, even more so in the nitty-gritty and starts saying, don't, don't grumble, don't complain. Mm-hmm. He bids them to shine as lights mm-hmm. uh, in the world and really calls to, for unity in this passage um, f- by them living out a certain way before the watching world and pushes them even beyond the church mm. and how they ought to live mm-hmm. in light of the fact that there's a lost world that needs to be to be reached. Mm. And so there's just, there's no passage mm. that says, uh, okay, just focus on Jesus and forget about all the rest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's just not even this passage, which is the, the, one of the greatest statements I'm thinking as well of Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Right. One of the great doctrinal statements about the Lord Jesus Christ. Really, it's an interesting progression where it gets very practical and then goes doctrinal and then comes right back up to the practical. Mm-hmm. He just won't let you stay there. Yeah. Um, the truth of Christ ought to propel us forward to live out the life of the teachings mm. of our faith. It's the Great Commission. Amen. It begins not with a commission but a claim. All authority in heaven and earth has been given, but, but he doesn't say, okay, so just focus on me. Remember me. Mm-hmm. He said, now go. Right. <laughs> Make disciples yes. of all of all the nations. And yes. so um, And teach them everything. Teach them to observe. That's right. All that I have commanded you. And so um it's as if, you know, look at Jesus and Focus on the gospel, remember Christ, and that's the fuel mm-hmm. for us to live out the Christian life, not an excuse for us to um, hang out in, you know, on the Mount of Transfiguration mm. <laughs> and make tents. It makes happen. to add to that? No, I think the the temptation is to separate the resurrection from the fulfillment from the statement that Jesus makes that I didn't come to abolish the law, Mm -hmm. but I came to fulfill the law. Mm -hmm. And often there's a, whether it's intentional or unintentional bifurcation from the law and the prophecies Mm -hmm. and the point of the prophets and the 
calling on the nation of Israel, mm-hmm. the life and birth and life of Jesus from somehow there's like a line that gets drawn where it's like there's the resurrection and maybe the return. People do this with the return of Christ too. It's like let's it's all about the return and those things and somehow that's separate from Genesis one, two, and three. Right. You know what I mean? And so I think it's just easy for the human brain to try to like pick one thing and make it but the thing that makes it truly great is the foundation on which that thing is culminated. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Which is, so I would just, oh, I always look at the, he didn't come to do away with the law or the history of Israel or the commands of God mm-hmm. that are just life lived better mm-hmm. when obeyed. Mm-hmm. He didn't come to do away with all that. He actually came to sh- to, to do it all mm-hmm. so that you could be counted as righteous before God because of him. Right. You know what I mean? And the resurrection seals that bad boy up, you know? Yeah, I just think to, I think this is, again, the beauty of the book of Philippians. Um, I'm trying to find a way to contradict myself, and I, but I'm, this, this, in a sense, feels to me of the letters to churches, maybe the least doctrinal. Mm-hmm. It's a very practically driven mm-hmm. letter. And a part of that, there's no particular rebuke. Yeah, that, it's, it's, it's the only epistle without a particular rebuke. There is right. something he's usually trying to correct, right. mm-hmm. and it doesn't seem that way here and it, it's so it's not doctrinally driven. You can, you know, we often say that his letters uh, begin with doctrine and end with duty. This is not there. Mm. But will you find a more, a better example of a letter where the gospel is woven throughout mm-hmm. all of these various subjects mm-hmm. that he discusses? And so um, it's just a reminder that. The doctrinal truth about the Lord Jesus Christ is is not something for us to categorize and lay to the side. Mm-hmm. And this is what we contemplate over and is disconnected mm-hmm. from real world issues. Yeah. This is a wonderful example of how the gospel from matters of life and death to how he talks about a love offering that he received mm-hmm. to to just the practical struggles Mm -hmm. to just hang in there, chapter four, all of them, Mm -hmm. Um, even his, you know, chapter one, the whole update about his situation in prison (laughs) is seen in light, you know, of of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And um, that is how, that's a proper way to do doctrine, Mm -hmm. if I may say it that way. That it shapes how, when you see it correctly, it shapes how you see everything else. And then that's what we unify around. You were asking the question. It's uh, a a very wise observation, I think. A lot of people that really try to tune up the the phraseology about unity often try to turn down the doctrine. But Mm -hmm. um, people talk about, you got to know the difference between close-handed and open-handed issues. Mm -hmm. Another good illustration I find is there's a difference between state borders and national borders. Mm -hmm. And you could differ like state to state. I mean, there is a difference between Florida and Alabama for sure. We're not the same state, but we're still in the United States of America. And so if you agree on – the list is pretty short. The authority of the Word of God, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the supremacy of Christ. You know, if you, if you agree with the gospel, then we can have all kinds and, – and particularly you got to agree on the authority of the Word of God. And if your reading of the Word of God leads you to a mode of baptism different than mine, but we both agree the authority came from here, not a tradition, 
then we're just talking about two different states, but we're on the same kingdom. Mm-hmm. You start getting away from one God and three persons, the supremacy of Christ, the authority of mm-hmm. God's word, that there's more than one way to heaven. Mm-hmm. You're in a different kingdom. Yeah. You're not you're Mexico now, not the US. Mm-hmm. Like we are not on the same team. Yeah. And I am not called now my call to you is not unity, it's evangelism. Mm-hmm. To share the gospel of Jesus that you would surrender his lordship. This is very these are two different things. Yes. Hmm. Very well said. All right, in the section that you mentioned, uh, I believe it's six and following. I believe this is this is called the humiliation of Christ. Like he's in the he's God, becomes a man, becomes a servant, becomes obedient to the Father's will to die, even death on a cross. And that is a, a you you can't get more extreme from going you know the throne room of God to death on a cross. So so what about this? Talk to us pastors about. Uh, why is this so staggering when he makes this statement about so, that That ascension? I think you see here a little bit of what you see all the way through Romans, and it's Paul's like didactic mind. Mm-hmm. He knows when he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others than yourselves, mm-hmm. others better than yourselves. I think, just like he does in Romans, so he'll write a chapter in Romans, and then he knows here's the questions coming. So then he pivots and answers all the questions. I I almost have this sense like Paul, not that I know the mind of Paul, but I have this sense like Paul hears somebody saying, whoa, 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 but how far do we take it? Mm-hmm. And so he goes ahead and pre-answers, well, if you want to know the call of the Christian, you take it as far as Jesus did, and he took it to the cross. So what's mm-hmm. your question again? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that changes the way I treat my wife. It changes the way mm-hmm. I treat my kids. Mm-hmm. It just does. It changes the way I treat everybody that I work with. Mm-hmm. And especially when I start to get the feeling of like, but I'm entitled to be respected or this isn't fair or that's my right or I can't believe he talked to me that way. Mm-hmm. It's in that moment where I'm beginning to defend me mm-hmm. and I can hear Philippians saying, no, 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 do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, how far? Oh, Yeah. Just as far as Christ went for me. That's how I'm supposed to treat you. It reminds me of that phrase. Isn't there a phrase in the Gospel of John? I can't remember the, the chapter. Oh, no, I'm, insecure. I'm insecure. I'm insecure now that I don't remember the... the... I do. I will tell you this. Just get started. Pastoral finish. Pastor Britt mentioned it, but every time I hang out with you just for a little bit, I just go, I like do Bible memory so much harder. I really do. And I feel like I know a lot of verses. But, okay. I'm sorry. He says... But when he's going to wash the disciples' feet, and he says that he did this to show them, to demonstrate when the full extent of his love, Correct. which is kind of this, it's a mini picture of what Paul's describing here. So if you want to demonstrate the full extent of your love, like the great love of God, yeah, that's good. you would go to the extent from, you would go from to such great lengths where you would be in the form of God until you became totally humiliated beyond human form. That's good. Um, <clears throat> how does God do that? And not change. God, same yesterday, today, and forever. How does God go from, how's Jesus, the third person, or the second person of the Trinity, go from that to incarnation without any change? Yeah, so um, I would say without plunging too deeply in theological intricacies, that he, in this uh, 
emptying of himself. Mm -hmm. Never lost anything of his deity. Mm -hmm. It is not about him losing any of his deity. It is that he took on human nature. Mm -hmm. um, he, he became one of us. Mm -hmm. uh, the old Joan Osborne song. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, is not scandalous enough <laughs> to describe the second person of the Godhead mm -hmm. who knows the worship of the angels at the right hand of the Father, mm -hmm. removing himself from those privileges to become one of us, take on uh, humanity in all of its implications except sin. Mm -hmm. And you know, if it was us, okay, we would have done that, but we would have like put on humanity and come to earth as a celebrity, as a king, you know, right. as, a, as a wealthy man. Uh -huh. <laughs> but but he, he comes and takes on the lowliest role. Mm -hmm. Um. I don't know where the quotation, I can't remember the, the source of the quotation, but one author said that if we really understood what happened in the incarnation, we would remove the word sacrifice out of our vocabulary. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. when you just think mm -hmm. of what God in Christ did mm -hmm. in uh, becoming poor for us in the language of Second Corinthians, right. um, We've never, we've never made any sacrifice, <laughs> yeah. and and there is no real sacrifice of, uh, that that we make in obeying anything that mm -hmm. the Lord mm -hmm. commands us to do. Even though the ordinariness of his life, I mean, being God and then limiting himself to being a four year old, yeah. or to getting hungry, or to waiting until your next birthday, or what you know what I mean, like all those things. Like well, I was thinking about. Um, uh, the first time and unique experience of the second person of the Trinity being in one place at one time. Mm -hmm. mm. Yes. That's pretty mind-blowing. So I love, uh, I love these kinds of passages. But I, I love to teach this from the Gospels mm -hmm. where, you know, there are these narratives where the humanity and the divinity of Christ just bump into each other, mm -hmm. you know. On a boat trip, he does what a tired man does. He takes a nap. That's mm -hmm. right. In a storm, he does what only God can do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you get an invitation to a wedding, you go to a wedding. That's what a man does. Uh -huh. They run out of wine, you say, ah, fix that. That's only awesome. God could do that. And I mean, right. and there are these, you, you go to the graveside of a friend and you weep. That's what That's a man right. does mm -hmm. when a dear friend dies. Mm -hmm. um, but in that same scene, only God can say, Roll the stone away. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Come here, Lazarus. Wow. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a remarkable mm. truth to consider. I was just in Israel. I just got back. And um, I haven't been there a few times now. One of the things that never gets lost on you is so much of the cultural nuance that you learn, mm -hmm. even thousands of years later, yeah. that still holds true in the land, you know? And one of the things that always shocks people, and I had even forgotten it until our God mentioned it this time, was we talk about Jesus being born into a carpenter's family. Mm -hmm. And we think hammers 
and woodwork right. and saws because that's the way we think about a carpenter. Somebody make, but it's almost a sure thing that he actually mostly worked with stone. Mm-hmm. And when you think about the amount of back-breaking work that went in for decades mm-hmm. of Jesus breaking stones and forming stones and shaping stones into streets and into homes and into, you know what I mean? Like, wonder if he ever made a tomb cover. For sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. Of course he did. Right. I mean, you know, I might be wrong about that in heaven, but I'll take my chances. <laughs> yeah. um, you, you ever? I wonder if he ever dug one out. Right. Of a mountainside. Yeah. It's like um, those it's like those stories where somebody has magic powers but they have to hide them, you know? And it's just like, man, it'd be so much, so much easier if I could just, you know, snap my fingers and it would be done. He created the whole world through words. Mm. And without sin, obviously, did he ever get frustrated and be like, I can just say, be be a tomb, you know, and <laughs> then it's all out of the yeah, side and of the mountain. By its rules, that's humility. Yeah. I think that I think that I think the two things that st- stand out in this conversation with me is about that is one, the am- amount of humility that it takes, knowing the amount of authority that he has right. to joyfully submit himself one unto his earthly father, mm-hmm. into the family practice and into the family work. And it wasn't like people were lining up outside the door being like, "I'd like to place my order." No, they had to go and like travel and f- mm-hmm. get work. And then two, this the symbolic nature of him mm-hmm. just breaking rocks and forming them into something useful mm-hmm. and good, mm-hmm. you know? And you, when you go over there and you look at stones and the way they're shaped and the way they're, you, you less like, man, that's almost like looking in a mirror. Mm-hmm. Like I am a dead stone hearted. Mm-hmm. He came here to, to break that stone mm-hmm. wide open. You know what I mean? And, um, yeah. and so, but just the humility that mm-hmm. it would take to be him. Yeah. And then to submit yourself to, what eventually was literally backbreaking work, but that was his profession, you know. If I may quickly, you referenced John thirteen, Jesus washing the disciples' feet. There it is. But that passage begins in verse one by saying, by setting the scene, it's the feast of the Passover. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He, he had a clear sense of identity. Mm-hmm. And it's just the difference between him and us. Mm-hmm. Because we have this warped thing, thing about who we think we are right. that makes us above <laughs> serving others. 100%. He knew exactly who he was. Mm-hmm. He knew the outcome of all that was about to happen. Mm-hmm. And yet out of that sense of identity, he took on the lowliest task. Mm-hmm. That the servant would have in the household, and that's mm. to, to wash feet that mm. none of his disciples yeah. would do. And Vicky pointed out, and it says he shows them the full extent of his love. Didn't preach sermon, didn't do another miracle. He could have like transfigured again. Yeah, yeah. Like all right, everybody missed this the first time. You just through here and did the thing. <laughs> and he serves. I mean, he lives out. He. Yeah. I, I find it the the words grab me in Philippians two always that he emptied himself. Mm. And it just hits me because we are so full of ourselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, our generation created the selfie. Think about that. Yeah. There's like the greatest generation that gave their lives on the beaches of Normandy, mm-hmm. and our people are most known for taking a picture of yourself and posting it about yourself mm-hmm. in a platform that just highlights self. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That we are just full of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And even and that does and that 
That is not just that dangerous, icky world out there. Mm. I'm talking about the church mm-hmm. and the evangelical machine right now mm-hmm. and many people making much of themselves instead of making much of the gospel mm-hmm. that they preach. Mm-hmm. And it's an easy thing to fall into mm. to be sitting at that table waiting on somebody to wash your feet. Mm-hmm. Because what also hits me in John 13 is at the end, when Jesus is like, y'all don't understand what I did right now, yeah. but I have set for you an example. Yep. You will be blessed if you do likewise. Mm. Yep. Mm. Mm. I mean, this is one of the final conversation teaching moments he's going to have with his disciples. I know, I know it goes on for about four chapters, and then he's going to pray. But the final example that he gives mm-hmm. is not preaching, it's not teaching, it's not strategy, it's not organization. Mm-hmm. It's humility and serving. Mm. Isn't it fascinating? If you, just like if, as a husband and a father and a, a teammate and someone who works with and around other, just in all your spheres of influence in your life, if you take Philippians 2 and you just, just memorize, you know, 5 through, I don't know, 9, and then you look at James 4, I'm not going to say the verse because I'll, I'll be wrong, but um, James 4 where he says... You know what your problem is. You know what you're mad about. But you didn't get what you wanted. Mm-hmm. If you could just like take those two things yeah. as commands from Scripture, mm-hmm. I'll be as bold to say 97.5% of your problems in life, mm-hmm. they gone. So that, that jumps. I think this is why he writes 14 and 15 here. Okay, now, again, we joke around here, HB, that we all memorize this stuff in the NIV 84 because that's when we were, our brains were sponges and all that. So my mind doesn't say do everything without grumbling. It says do everything without complaining or arguing that you may shine like stars in a crooked and depraved generation. This is what you're talking about. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm just telling you. Let's say you, you just work at your office and everybody gripes and complains. You want to change it? You think it's gospel tracks? You think you're going to do some kind of miracle? Paul would have you believe if you would just not complain or argue, you would be so countercultural in your office situation that when everybody else is like griping about the boss and you got to come in on Saturday and you were the one person that just maybe kept your mouth shut with a little bit of a smile, Mm -hmm. you in that situation would shine like a star in a crooked and depraved generation. Mm -hmm. That is how entitled we are and it's everything you're saying, man. It's what causes fights and quarrels among you. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. you. It's because you're not getting what you want. Mm-hmm. He's saying here, if you could just not complain and argue, you you would you would stick out. Even if people close their eyes, they would still see you because mm-hmm. you would be so different because of what Christ has mm-hmm. done for you. Mm-hmm. Can I say, can I take it super practical? I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, oh, go ahead. I'll take it super practical Please. real quick. So you're in marriage. You're married. You, the first question you ask was what? How do you stay humble? Mm-hmm. Well, be married, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's both, it goes in both directions. I mean, it's not. I mean, this everybody involved, you know. Um, but you're in, you're married, right? And sometimes in your marriage, it's hard to see that ultimately what you're getting like dinged about, or you know, the, the, you're getting angsty about this kind of the frustration building a little bit is ultimately that the other person's just not behaving the way that you think they should. But you lose that. Like you lose the sense of, I'm to- this is totally just me based in my own preferences. Mm-hmm. 
that I'm now sticking on this other person and saying, this is how you should be because it would that's how I think you should be. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And so how have you learned as a husband with Philippians 2 and James 4, like how to like practically apply the, the humility of Christ pouring out of himself to more, I guess the question is how have you learned how to get out of your own way through practically applying the humility that Paul's prescribing here? Yeah, I think this is the, you know, you can't go from uh, the hymn of Christ to do all things without grumbling, complaining without that 12 and 13. Mm. Work out your own salvation with uh, fear and trembling. Mm-hmm. And I think this this is one of the great statements of the Bible, verse 13. 13. Mm-hmm. God himself is at work in you. Mm-hmm. This is uh, not something that we can do in our own wisdom, strength, or resources. Mm-hmm. Um, the do not complain and grumble and argue is right after the assurance that God himself continues to work in you so that you will want to do what he wants you to do. Mm-hmm. And be enabled to do what he wants you to do. Um, And so um, a Christ-honoring life has to begin with a God-conscious heart Mm -hmm. where, you know, you can't do verse 14 until you are saturated in verse 12 and 13 Mm -hmm. Um, in in, in that regard. Uh, That would be the starting point of where I would say. Isn't it? One of the things I'm just kind of trying to keep it in the context of marriage for like two seconds. Yeah, but good. The, the there's probably ten ways that I would view my wife, whom I love and I'm wild about. But there's kind of the like practical Ryan Britt way of like viewing my my wife of like we're married and we're in this thing together and. Here's the next thing we've got to accomplish in life. Here's the to to do list, all the things, right? It's kind of the real, just immediate. And we can work through that. Praise God, God's in that. But then there's these moments when I see verse thirteen, for it is God who works in you. But He's, I can see Him at work in my wife, mm-hmm. both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And I see God demonstrating His good pleasure at work in my wife. And when I can like by the power of the Spirit, put those glasses on and see him at work. Like, there's a lot of joy there in marriage, even in the middle of the struggle or in the middle of whatever we're working through um, in life. Like, if I can just take captive, God is at work in her, and I can choose to see that. That's so much of the what's been granted to me in Christ is to be able to look through different eyes, right? Yeah. I think... um if I just may say personally, I'm I'm wired in a certain way that if something bothers me, I don't grumble, complain about it. I kind of withdraw. Mm. Um, I kind of in my own head <laughs> uh, gr- grumble and complain. So um, yeah, so I, I would just say. Um, I'm not prone, and neither is my wife, 
we can we are we playfully tease tease each other all the time. But when something has rubbed us for real, it gets it gets quiet. Mm. <laughs> it's not mm. the the grumbling and complaining. Um, but the principle still applies because it is in our that grumbling complaining happens with words. It also happens in our hearts. Mm-hmm. And I would also just say the I would say the a practical way. Even though this may sound spiritual to say, but the practical way that helps me to guard against that and to fight it when it arises is to be praying for my wife. Amen. Yeah, no doubt. I, I have to, um, and that's just all of our interpersonal relationships. Mm-hmm. You really can't stay angry, bitter, hateful towards someone you are sincerely, fervently, mm-hmm. passionately. Praying for one is going to cancel out the and other, there, and there's the difference between praying for and praying about. <laughs> yeah, praying about is, dear God, please fix my wife so she'll act the way I want. I mean, that's not helpful at all. Yeah. You're actually trying to get God on your team to attack, sure. as opposed to praying for her to work out. One of the ways it, it, it's helped me to think about what does it mean to work out your salvation. It does not mean that your salvation hadn't been worked out. Like, is it still in question? It's more like God has put a thing in you. That's what verse 12 is going to say. The Spirit of God has deposited in you. The image I had, my grandma told me this. The image my, I had is like a like like she would she would like knead dough as she was making biscuits, and she was getting trying to get that yeast worked out into every part of the dough. Mm-hmm. And so Christ is in you, and so live in such a way that he is he is living in every aspect of all of your life, so that it's not just an inside thing between you and Jesus, but now it's a worked mm-hmm. out on the outside thing that the whole world can see. Mm-hmm. And that's what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus. Mm-hmm. May I share a brief story? Please. I fell in, I first I decided to preach through Philippians for the first time. I was a young pastor, and there was a little bookstore in Westwood, in Los Angeles, that I'd go into. And one day I'm at the store, and on the wall in the back is a preacher in a leather outfit on a Harley Davidson. And it said, buy the new book by the Sermonator. <laughs> wow. All right. And I was just like, whoever, whoever this cat is, he's got my 20 bucks. I'm going to buy this book. <laughs> the book was Laugh Again by Chuck Swindoll. Oh. And I just took it home. I just was curious what this was about. It was his exposition of the book of Philippians. Wow. It, it, it really kind of made me fall in love with Philippians reading that book. Mm. And in his section here on chapter two, he describes it, the working out two ways that I think are just beautiful Mm. um, and practical. He says, you know, um, when you go to hear an orchestra play, um, everything has been, the music has been given to them. It's not their composition. Mm -hmm. A symphony uh, is, is benefiting from the work of the other, but they don't come out and just kind of hold the sheet music up. (laughs) Right. They got to they got to work it out. They have to practice it. Hmm. And his his second illustration is, I think, even more practical. That you go to the doctor. There's diagnosis. There's prescription. But you 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 don't get the prescription filled and set it on the shelf and just praise God for your doctor. If you're going to get better, you have hmm. to take what he prescribes. And he uses those as illustrations of working out mm-hmm. 
all of it, uh, we're, we're to work out our salvation. Thank God, not work for our salvation. That's, That's it. Right. Yeah, That's or work on our salvation. That's right. Right, right, right. Um, but we are to work it out. There is a goal. Mm. There is a purpose. There is an aim, mm. which takes us again back to the hymn of Christ, to, mm. to be like Christ. Mm. And that requires that we strive to bring to completion. Philippians 1.6 says, The good work he began in us, he will complete. And there's a sense in which we are partners with God in that process mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as we strive to live out the calling that he's placed upon our lives. Yeah. I have another question. Do you have a question? I was going to say, yeah, but go ahead. <laughs> All right. Well, one, you said Swindoll, which one of my heroes, so thanks for bringing him up. Sure. The... Um, when it talks about working out your salvation with fear and trembling, and you just, it's like in my head, I just hear it ringing. You got to do the hard work, man. Mm. You got to do the hard work. You got to lean in. You got to dig deep into the well. And the closer you get to the cross, the bigger the sovereignty and grace of God is, as well as the deeper the depth of your depravity is revealed, right? Mm. And, but I think about in our individualistic, culture that we live in mm-hmm. where everybody's got six foot privacy fences nobody shares anything our whole world is we're actually being radically pulled into more and more and more individualism through privacy and self-protection than we've ever been ever mm-hmm. but we live in the most radically individualistic culture arguably in the history of the world right now but this is as per your most recent sermon or one of your most recent sermons, it's a we thing, not a me thing, mm-hmm. right? So this is a lot of context. One of the things that I think about when working out or the way it's played out in my own life is I've had to dig deep into like to understand all that God has saved me from and for through Jesus Christ. I've had to dig deep into like family history. I've had to dig deep into bents like why am I why do I think this way and why am I bent that way and what traits were passed down and how was the enemy at work in my family 10 generations ago trying to destroy my children you know what I mean and so when you think about working out your like but in our individualistic society it seems like sometimes we think of it just in terms of like my life right now what's the work I need to do but it's actually deeper than that. It like goes backward and it goes forward. And so as you've really like matured in your relationship with Christ, how have you walked out the deep work of really deny the self-denial? Like in order to self-deny, you've got to be able to articulate self in order to deny that thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the, the the deep work he's talking about with fear and trembling is like there's some places that are just hard to go and you need to go there. So I I, I read this in the text a little differently. Um, I never thought of it the way you described it, and I'd have to think about that a little further. The Bible teaches by what it commands, explains, of course— but it also teaches by what it assumes. And, you know, there are people that say, oh, the Bible doesn't say this about the church. The Bible doesn't say that about the church. But all of what he's saying in here has, has an, an assumption mm-hmm. that you are a participating member right. of the body life 
yeah. of a local church. Mm-hmm. This is not really about. We can make application to marriage, work relationships, but he's talking about how we live together as the people of God. That's mm-hmm. right. He's talking about what it means to be the church. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I often say, and I often <laughs> remind myself, that the fruit of the Spirit is cultivated in the soil of difficult relationships. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not while you are in your prayer time, he transplants love, joy, peace in, in you. It's... <laughs> He, he, he teaches you love by, by putting you in relationship with people who are difficult to love. Mm. He teaches you patience by bringing in your life people who get on your last nerve. Mm. And I think that's in the context of the church. Mm. This whole, don't, this is not just don't grumble or complain about your wife. This is he saying what it means to be children of God. And this is poetic language to describe our, the mission of the gospel in the world. Mm-hmm. And we're shining as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. He, he's saying that being the just being the church and loving one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, children of God, is subversive activity mm-hmm. that undermines the false value system mm-hmm. of the world and shines a light in the midst of mm-hmm. Of darkness, mm. um, so you know, you, as you mentioned, looking back and looking forward may have its place, but I need for me to do that hard work. I need to be, I need to be able to look around, mm-hmm. that's good, and see and have people in my life who are not just there because we share color, background, interests. Mm-hmm. I need people in my life mm-hmm. who are are there because of the Jesus connection. That's mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And we are headed the same way in following him. I think I think the hardest work is just sticking it out with people, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We just had a staff meeting and Britt was honoring this girl that's been on staff for a while and been <clears throat> been pouring into this a, a difficult group of people, 18, 25 year olds, man, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And one of the things you said is there's such a blessing in just doing this with the same people for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um I get the opportunity to help coach some of my son's teams, right? And I'm with the weightlifting team and they're all whining because it's for whatever reason. And I get so mad one day and I yell at them, boys, you want to be strong, but you don't want to be sore. Hmm. And I thought, hmm, that'll preach. And I came here and talked to our staff and I thought, this is it, man. There's so many Christians and you say you want to be conformed into the image and likeness of Christ. You just are praying that God removes you from the gymnasium that makes you strong. You want to be strong. You just don't want to be sore. Yeah. Um, you know, I just kind of got on our church last week about so many people just because of laziness choosing to worship with us online. There's a bunch of legitimate reasons. And then there's some people who are just lazy. You need to set an alarm, put your pants on, yep. and you got to be around people because how can you one another one another if you're not with one another? There's right. 59 one another's in, mm-hmm. the, in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And, um, and God puts us in each other's life for his glory and our development and oftentimes in our individualistic, transient, screen-driven society. So it, there's a huge temptation these days, it seems to me, that when it gets hard, I'll just bounce. And here's the other thing. 
do all without grumbling and complaining means that there are going to be things that legitimately <laughs> make you want to grumble and complain. Right. And this is not, again, Corinth, which is just a reminder that even a good church is not a perfect church. That's, That's right. right. That's right. It's, it's, it is going to be the hard work of loving mm. relationships. We talked a little bit, we talked a lot about the community aspect of all of this. And I have a question that's on my mind. Like he says, work out your own salvation. It makes me think of James 4.10, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he'll exalt you. What's the difference between exhorting your brothers and sisters and trying to humble somebody else? Like, is it our job to humble other people? I know you have thoughts on that. I, I, man, I have. Pastor, you could probably help me out with this. I can't find somewhere in the scripture where it says my job is to keep you humble. Yeah, absolutely. And I hear it. As a pastor, I hear it all the time. Yeah. And what people do is they preface what they think is going to be a compliment with that statement. Well, I want you to stay humble, and I want your head to get too big, and I want to go, hold on, that's not your job, man. That is between me and Jesus, my posture before Jesus. Mm. My Bible says that you and I are supposed to encourage one another all the day long, right? So, but but there's this there's this thing in the air right now that we assume upon other people that they are going to take our encouragement and somehow are going to it's going to be a problem for them in regards to pride. And I would say this is true of most of the preachers that I know, but beyond that, most of the Christians I know. Hmm. Most people. Most preachers, most many Christians are starving for encouragement, not drunk on compliments. Oh, my gosh. Say that one more time. Just say it one more time. <laughs> most <laughs> preachers are starving for encouragement, not drunk on compliments. That's right. And they need to be hmm. encouraged. Hmm. The humility thing is tricky because it's the most elusive virtue. Mm-hmm. Is there a more... The moment you know you got it, you don't have it. You, I mean, you can't, you can't, you can't be proud of my of your humility. But it also applies. I mean, I, I feel like it's also an expression mm. of pride mm. that you are so able to identify it in others that you you're gonna set them right. in the right course toward <laughs> toward humility. I, I just think that's that's just not the way Scripture. My son's Talks. in first grade, and uh, at his at his school, they'll sometimes give virtue awards. And he comes home the other day, says, "Dad, I'm pretty good at humility. I've, <laughs> I've gotten I've gotten two humility awards. So I'm pretty good at it. <laughs> it was the best. I don't know how much time we have left, but how long have you been in full time vocational pastoral ministry? How long? Twenty years plus. Thirty three or something. Thirty like thirty three. Praise God. Mm. Yeah. So I'm on 20. I'm on 26. You're on 20. 30. You're on 30. Mm -hmm. You're on, got to be coming up on 18, 17, 18. Uh, Yeah. Decades. We're sitting here decades. We're old, fellas. Yeah. I, I would say this thing that you're asking about keeping each other humble and it is one of, if not the primary tool that I've seen the spirit of fear used to rob the joy among the brethren. Mm, mm, mm. Mm. And I, one of my 
pastors along the way used to say, nobody can give you what God has not, and nobody can keep you from what God has for you. And so much of it's an issue of like, what, like Pastor Joby is my brother and leader and friend and pastor. Yeah. You know, I think he's an incredibly anointed man. I, I'm grateful for him, for his friendship, for his leadership, for all, for his brotherhood. I try to encourage him every chance that I get um, because I love him and he's, it's worth it. You know, and it's a good for my soul to do that. Um, and I'm also not in a position where God has given me any authority over his life spiritually to say, to offer anything but encouragement and exhortation and friendship and brotherhood. Does that make sense? Like he has a plurality of elders and they're looking out for him, but God has not seen it fit for me to be one of those. And I'm, do you see what I'm saying? Like, there's some real lines of spiritual authority there that it's like, yeah, but for even, Pastor Joby to exhort our church and that exhort, or you to preach and God use you to convict other people and to, that produce humility in people, praise God. It's another thing to go like chasing people to try to keep them humble, humble that are outside the bounds mm -hmm. of what God has given you in your life as a mm. as a sphere. Does that make sense? But let me say this about you. But okay, this is a perfect example. Your posture towards me of humility, the only thing it does at, at a much lesser level, but <clears throat> Philippians 2 talks about what, G, what, what God does to Jesus because of his humility. So your influence in my life couldn't be more, couldn't be bigger because of your posture of humility towards me. If you were always trying to like find an angle to lord some kind of authority over me, mm. I would probably have more of a defensive posture towards you. But instead, because of your humble and encouraging posture towards me, my ears are wide open to whatever, mm -hmm. whatever opinion you have that you think that you need to share with me for my benefit and yours and to the glory of God. That's the that's the like countercultural nature of humility. You want to have the most influence in the room, be the most humble guy at the table. And people will want to hear what you say. You want everybody to think you're just blowing smoke? You'd be the loudest, most demonstrative person telling everybody else what they have to do and how they should feel. Mm. And then you are the most dismissed person in the room. It's kind of, I was like, go ahead. Yeah, I don't... I'm not sure if this is 100% related. But what, what comes to my mind, even with the twisting of text like this, is that there's a unhealthy egalitarianism, I would say, in the church where we want to flatten out all lines of authority, and Scripture never does that. That's, That's right. right. That's right. There is a call to genuine humility and unity here, mm -hmm. but it doesn't flatten out lines That's right. of authority and humility that the that the New Testament. And instructions to the church still calls for. That's right. And that whole humbling of others mm. is, is, is an expression of this desire to flatten. Because if I can flatten these lines of authority so that no one is in charge, it, make, it gives me a chance to be more That's in right. charge. That's right. and, mm. I, and that process robs me of the legitimate joy Christ offers. Mm. Um, one of uh, his last books. Uh, before he moved upstairs, Adrian Rogers, mm. his own kingdom authority. Mm. And the simple line he, he says in there 
about the kingdom authority is that before you can get over what the Lord has put under you, you got to learn how to get under what the Lord has put over you. Golly. Adrian. And, <laughs> yeah. Come on, man. Adrian Rock. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Uh, and I'd like to send a survey out right now to all listeners. Who knows who Adrian Rogers <laughs> was? I know very well. Yeah, I grew yeah, yeah. up on it. And I just think we don't want to get under what the Lord has put over mm. us. And it makes it impossible mm-hmm. for us to get over what the Lord has put. So, Pastor HB, because uh, we planted this church and it grew fast, I get invited to preach all the church planting conferences, you know. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I constantly remind people is how in the world could you ever expect God to give you authority until you learn to live under authority? It is not until Peter claims that Christ is the son of the living God, then Jesus says, here are the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. It is not before that. Yes. And what's what's interesting is um, there are clear lines here of authority and all those things. Our staff, though, towards me is is so humble, so encouraging. So they really are. All it makes me want to do is go John 13 and try to serve and try to, how can I help? And you just never feel the need to like have to establish anything yeah. when the people that you love and get to work with, when, when they live as if all of that is clearly established, then you, the, the, the counterintuitive thing as the way the world works is then you want to be the person that is trying to stoop the lowest, trying to serve the most, as opposed to to having, I mean, the moment you have to pull out your title, it's over anyway. You have lost all authority. There is a sense then in in that regard where Philippians can be read as a a pastoral epistle in a lot of ways. Mm. I mean, there's, there's, there is what Paul is saying to the Philippians. But if you go and read through this letter and just what does this letter say about Paul? Mm-hmm. What is his posture? How does he describe himself? Mm-hmm. How does this letter, what kind of leader does this show him to be? There is a whole, wow. right? but, but unlike say Timothy and Titus correspondence, the character and the and the commitments and the conduct of leadership are not as directly addressed here. But what you find here are the relational elements mm-hmm. of a healthy church. Um, and you're absolutely right. Without the order, without an org chart, without the structural factors, it's just so interpersonal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where Jesus is the center That's and right. he shapes our lives together. Amen. Yeah. That's a healthy church. Amen. Well, I think we might need to wrap up here. Yeah, that's a perfect. How do you? What do you add to that? I mean, <laughs> well, you can come in every week. I would preach a Bible study just for my own personal uh, man <laughs> spiritual growth. Well, maybe just a comment. And you can pray, but uh, you know the way he ends this section, and I'm just so I marvel at Paul's uh, indifference to like what happens to him. He says, "If I live or die, whatever." He says, "If I'm." Even if I'm poured out, I'm going to rejoice. And I know it's your prayer, Pastor Joby, for our church that we would have that kind of security, that kind of assurance mm-hmm. that we know whose we are. We know the love that Christ has for us. Um, but any final encouragements to 
to be more like that, or, or and then certainly a prayer for us to be like that. Yeah, I mean, look at the back and forth in 17 and 18. I know you're going to preach it, but <clears throat> Paul is talking about evaluating his life in ministry mm-hmm. based on the fruit that will be produced in the church in Philippi. Mm-hmm. And it's very, per- I mean, Paul has given his whole life to this. Mm-hmm. We all four of us have all given our whole life to work for his bride. Mm-hmm. And... um the banner of success, if that's what you want to call it, is not like number of people, not number of downloads. It's none of that kind of stuff. It's there will come a day when the people that God used us to pour into mm-hmm. will stand before the Lord and be counted as faithful. Mm-hmm. And so with that banner, he says this, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And then here it comes back. And likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Mm-hmm. It is a wonderful thing when the the shepherds and the sheep are all just rejoicing together mm-hmm. right, for the glory of God. Amen. But don't miss that analogy. Mm-hmm. Poured out as a drink offering was just a closing libation a ceremonial act at the end that you poured this water on the sacrifice and the smoke went up. Mm -hmm. He's saying, you are doing the real work of sacrifice. Mm. I'm just a libation at the end. (laughs) He's saying, what I'm doing is nothing compared to you. Mm. That's the the point of the analogy. And he says, and you're the real thing. I just get to tag along to see what you're up to in the gospel, and I rejoice in that. Yeah, it's something that I teach, uh, uh, especially aspiring church planners all the time. I I, I say, guys, we've gotten this thing backwards, man. You think God called you to be a pastor, and so he owes you a church. (laughs) No, 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 no. God calls a church into existence and then gives that church a pastor to serve. And so, same kind of thing. Yeah. Let me pray for us. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for my brother. H.B. Charles, God, the gifts that you've given him, the insight, the intellect, God, even just for my own spiritual development, um, just getting to do Bible study with him right here today has, has, um, has just been so much encouragement. Lord, I thank you so much for the voice that he is in this city, in this country, and around the world. God, I lift up his church, Shiloh. I lift up his family, that you would bless them. You would take care of him. God, that he would be surrounded by mighty men, that would help him just continuously and forever stay focused on you. God, I pray against the enemy's attacks in his life. God, we love him. We love him as a brother, as a fellow servant. And God, we thank you so much that um, he would be humble enough to come here and share with us here at 1122. God, we ask your blessings upon this conversation and hope that it has been a blessing to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. (laughs) The end. You nailed it. (laughs)